Good morning. This morning's chapter, uh, scripture reading is from the 15th chapter of Romans, verses 14 through 33. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I've written to you boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace of God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through, and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there, from Macedonia and Achaia, where pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. And they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy, by God's will, and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. You get up in front of people. Um, some of you here in this room would be fine with standing up in front of people and talking, and others, uh, it would be just about one of the most threatening things in the world. And so you can make all kinds of assumptions that people who get up and stand in front of people and say things have some kind of confidence. But often, uh, people from politicians to pastors can be among the most insecure people in the world, um, which is it's covered up by standing in front of people and saying things. And while I don't think that I'm among the most insecure of pastors, I can, I've had many a time where something that happens on a Sunday morning, it might just be, you know, 
what the feeling in the room is. It might be something that I said that I feel I shouldn't have said. It might be something that one of you have said to me. Uh, I can be so fickle uh, that, uh, and, and so insecure that by Sunday afternoon, in my head, the world has come to an end. Um, that's it. It's all going down. Uh, and then I ask a year ago and am granted a sabbatical to go away for four months. And then I realize after it's granted, that's a little risky. Um, and so then you start all kinds of games. But I'm pleased and I'm grateful and I'm excited. And I was excited for some time to be going on sabbatical. And I, with your permission, and you know this, you could switch this at any time. Uh, but with your permission, what I'm finding now is that I'm, I'm pleased about the months that I'll have off. But now I'm excited about coming back already, before I've gone. It's not like many sabbaticals, I don't think, unless there's something happening that I'm just so deaf that I don't hear, where sometimes ministers take sabbaticals because the board says, well, we've got to figure out what to do here. Um, and I don't feel that at all. But you do have that, at times, that fickle nature of the human heart where I told myself today, because some people were saying goodbye to me last Sunday, even as I was handing out the daffodils with Corrine for the cross, people were like, oh, I have a great sabbatical. Like, that was it. I was out, right? I was gone. Um, and uh, so for some reason, people thought I was, uh, you know, there's still two weeks left. It's like uh, after Easter, barely church, but there's still two weeks left. And I told myself today that if, if not very many people showed up, that's because people thought my sabbatical was starting. <laughs> or if a ton of people showed up, they knew it was one of my last Sundays. So either way, you can explain it to yourself in positive spin, or you can do the other. You can say, there's a lot of people here because they thought it was going to be a guest speaker, and they're like, no, him again. You are faced with the same thing I am, this stunning realization that happens over and over again in my life, just about every day, where by God's grace, I realize that it's not all about me. And it's always a stunning realization. Like when you get there and you go, wait a minute, it's not about any of that, really, to a small degree only. And you have the same challenge before you, and this is in this text this morning, as Paul writes his concluding remarks to the Romans, to this church in Rome. He does a masterful job of telling the people, without saying it with even as much self-centeredness as the story I just shared, Paul is able to say to them, this gospel that I'm proclaiming to you is not about me. The Christian gospel in the book of Romans, we remember that the gospel sets a question mark against all other convictions and philosophies in our lives and in this world. You live in a world where there are worldviews, philosophies, ways of seeing things that, that philosophers would call totalizing. That means that people have a way of seeing the world that can explain everything. Right now, in our part of the world, that really has to do with, uh, with economics. Uh, and you live, if nobody tells you to live otherwise, you live according to a standard in this world that the, the good life means that you've achieved some form of independence, maybe some health, some financial independence, and you can, you, maybe if you have kids, you can help them find some success. It's a totalizing kind of way of seeing the world. It, it swallows everything up. Talk to your non-Christian friends, and many of them, and Christians as well, live by that totalizing standard. 
But various psychologies, schools of psychology or philosophy are totalizing as well. And some of them come along and they impose themselves because of some convincing people or whatever else upon the world for some time, right? Uh, Sigmund Freud had a totalizing view of the world. Could explain everything that's happening in your life by, well, let's talk about your relationship with your mother. Um, That would explain some things in my life, but I hope not everything. The gospel presents itself, and this is difficult for people in our world, where we actually live by totalizing things, but we like to pretend that we don't. And so we tell ourselves that religion makes totalizing claims, and so therefore don't listen to religion, and then we give ourselves wholeheartedly to something like capitalism. The gospel, as presented in the book of Romans, unabashedly makes totalizing claims. It sets a question mark against all other philosophies and worldviews. So if you live according to the, to the terms of a market economy and success is defined in our world, and, and that begins to crack or collapse, the gospel is going to set a question mark against that and say, okay, how are you going to make sense of your life now? Some of you have, have faced difficulties in relationships, when even from a Christian background, you entered into a relationship and you thought, this is forever, and the thing begins to collapse a little bit or, or show some difficulty, and, and your whole worldview becomes, what do I do now? The gospel always asks this question, what's the worldview you're living by, and where is it inadequate? The problem of creaturely truths, that creaturely just means you know, made by humans, and money is made by humans, It's just interesting that we worship it. It's less real than God, obviously. It's hilarious. But the the problem of all creaturely truths is that there are so many of them. And they make themselves known as partial truths. None is the whole truth. The Christian gospel is going to be presented by Paul in this book, this letter to the Romans, as the whole truth. And we've gone through it. You have early on the wrath of God section that can... can put people off to say, oh yeah, God's presented as this vengeful, you know, mean, oppressive God. And really when you read Romans and you understand it well, Paul sets out two things. Remember, we talked about this a number of weeks ago for a number of weeks. If you live for self and appetite, that's going to get you to a place of destruction and emptiness. Do you know anybody that that's not the case for? If you live for self and appetite, it leads to destruction and emptiness. If you live for religion, though, Paul's going to say, then you're going to be maybe even more annoying. I think almost certainly more annoying. If you live for religion, because then you might not think you're living for self and appetite, but in a way you are because you're just trying to be better than everybody else. And that leads to destruction. And some of you know that kind of religion. Some of you have been hurt by that kind of religion. Judging others and never attaining freedom. Romans 3.21, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, these things that don't work, the gospel is presented as the only thing that is true. And as we get into chapter 5, as sin came through Adam and Eve, so um, I got to go back, it's not working to go back. Uh, sin came through Adam and Eve. So, I mean, most of you who've grown up in a religious context, you don't have any problem with sin. I mean, you might. What I mean is, you, if you grew up in churches, people were willing to tell you how bad you were very often. That's changing now. 
But in Romans 5, it'll say, if sin came through Adam and Eve, in other words, if we're all fallen, then how much more will grace, peace, truth come through Jesus Christ? An abundance of grace and righteousness come through Jesus Christ, known as the second Adam. And now we live in the light of the gospel, living in the light of God's mercies. And then the rest of the book is going to be a good deal about how we're then to treat one another with these words over and over again, because Christ, because Christ, then you need to treat each other this way. Because Christ, then you need to be patient with one another. Because Christ loved you while you're yet a sinner, you are to judge no one, no one. You remember that the book is a letter written to a church that Paul had never visited. It's quite a story, his story, and uh, some have heard of Paul's missionary journeys. He traveled all over, and he wanted desperately to get to Rome. And today and next week is the end of the letter, written to the Romans, basically saying, in fact, Paul lays out his plans. Here's what I'm going to do when I come and visit you in Rome. We'll have some coffee together, we'll have some nice chats, maybe watch a couple shows, and talk about God a little bit. It'll be lovely. He wants to get to Rome. You have an idea in your head. But what Paul does, and and my point of saying that Paul does not present himself as the center, if you think of your world today, my world today, and you think of all the plans and uh, regimes that people have, whether they're political or fitness or diet or vocational, people you give credibility to who can help you in your life with whatever it is that matters, might be gardening, whatever it is, education, now you can see who I'm looking at by just naming these things, right? Whatever it is. And people will sell you a system. Art. Thank you, Caroline. Um, People will sell you a system. And often the system has a name attached to it or a school of thought or a way of doing things so that you follow this new leader. They'll tell you the secrets of success or the ways to make money in real estate or the new fitness plan devised by a trainer to the stars and they'll stamp their name all over it and you get to be part of this, to benefit from this plan. What Paul is doing as Romans comes to an end is very different than that. As the letter comes to an end, rather than saying, here is the Pauline system, here is the Pauline system for personal renewal, which he could have done, and which probably would have happened in our culture today. In fact, Paul was a minister, a pastor, an evangelist, and he probably would have packaged this and sold it. Could have made some money. But Paul removes himself more and more as he concludes the letter, addressing people personally, but never putting in place, never putting himself at the center. He actually wants to make sure that the focus is not on him, but on God. This demonstrates the fundamental belief that God is working. I forgot to put my times here of when to switch, so when you see that going back and forth, that's why. Paul demonstrates the fundamental belief that he has that God is working, and what this does So he believes as he comes into this room, what I'm called to believe as a minister, and by God's grace I do believe it, that God is the agent of what is happening in this room by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not me, and not you, thanks be to God. And because Paul believes this, what he then does is he feels that he is called to proclaim the gospel that he has believed, life in Jesus Christ. And this allows him the freedom to see that God works and that Paul is not the agent of the gospel, that Jesus Christ living is always the agent of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So here's how it would work here. Next week, as we've mentioned, is my last Sunday before sabbatical. And if I thought that everything would fall apart, maybe it will, but probably it won't, which is actually a good thing for me, right, that it doesn't, maybe it'll get way, way better. And then I'll feel really terrible when I come back. No, it's, but whatever it is. But if I thought that I was the agent of what was happening here, then I would try to hold and control the thing much more than I am able, like much more than I need to do if I believe that God is working. And that God has for my good and God has for your good. I can trust. I'm not the agent of work and change. God is. It removes the motivation of fear because God is at work now. Now, a side note on our uh, cultural condition in the Christian church in the West in the last 20, 30 years, maybe more. And uh, because I'm leaving next week, I can criticize other churches and ministers, but not by name. If you forget that God is the agent of the work, what will then become your motivation? Almost always, very interesting, in many, many cases, particularly in religious settings, if you forget that God is the agent of the work, you will take up the motivation of fear and control. And trust me, you can build big churches on fear. It sells way easier than an ambiguous, seemingly ambiguous trust in God's work. And if you take up the motivation of fear, you don't have to believe that God is actually working. You can start to identify external enemies. These other people are the problem in the world. Here's the problem with you. The minister takes on incredible power and control. In my Christian faith, this kind of leadership, and I'll say this strongly, I'm leaving next week, has always demonstrated not the presence of faith, but the absence of faith. Because if you speak like that, how can you trust God? Be afraid, people. Be afraid. Be afraid for your teenagers. Oh, this is a terrible world for teenagers. It's a wonder they're still alive. Be afraid for your community because you know what's out there? I'll tell you what's out there. Sin. Be afraid for your church because nobody shows up on time anymore. You people, get here. That was just like my personal vendetta thing that I get in there. Dividing people into us and them. And this opens up people to incredible manipulation. And now I'll give a little political statement. Again, I'm leaving soon for a while. This opens up entire churches and swaths of Christian communities. I I would point to some of what's happening in the United States right now. It opens up churches to incredible manipulation so that con men and women, I suppose, but usually men, con men can come in and just take away. All in the name of God. By the way, those people will always be louder than I am. Or I think than Paul is. Because if you trust in God's presence and God's work, you don't scream as much, usually. The speaker, the minister, the evangelist, they do matter. But Paul gets it. Paul understands that the agent of any lasting gospel work is God. And look at verse 14. 
Paul says, I'm satisfied that you have everything you need. You're filled with goodness and all knowledge and can instruct one another. I could say that to you about these four months that I'm about to undertake. I could, I could say this almost the same thing. I'm satisfied that you have everything you need. You're filled with goodness and all knowledge and you can instruct one another. It's pretty lofty, isn't it? And in some ways, I think this is true. You do have all you need. You have all knowledge. You can care for one another and love one another. And yet, I preach week after week to you. Paul wrote this letter. He felt they needed something. And then Paul speaks two benedictions. This is actually, sorry, it comes before, before the section we read. Now, a benediction usually means the service is over. So, I mean, I'm just, like, two weeks you don't have to care about time is the last two weeks before your sabbatical, right? So sorry. But anyway, um, when the benediction happens, you can be pretty confident that service is coming to an end and you get to, you'll be having lunch soon. But Paul does, first of all, two benedictions. Chapter 15, verse 5, and then chapter 15, verse 13, just before our section that we read today. And after both of them, he keeps writing. So that's like when I do this, and other ministers do this from time to time too. They finish the sermon, they go sit down, they sing the last song, they come up and they preach a little mini-sermon again at the end. Or they tell you the five points of their sermon that they just said. Or they tell God the five points of the sermon. I like that one. Dear God, we know point one. But anyway, I just think God's going, I know that. I wrote it. Anyway. But sometimes I think God goes, I didn't write those last three. That's all you. <laughs> God sa- or God says, Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement, this is a prayer for, from me to you. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that benediction. How can you look at that without getting the main point, which is you are in this together? May God bless you because you're in this together. I pronounce blessings on you individually, but they're never as big as the blessings you pronounce on a community. Listen to Paul's language. Grant you endurance and encouragement that you may live in such harmony. It's my prayer for you. With one another... He adds this little tag again. In harmony, you don't need with one another. How else can you have harmony? In accord, another community word. You together in accord with Jesus Christ. So that together, he's almost overdoing it, isn't he? So that together you may, with one voice, enough. Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prayer from Paul to the Romans, from me to you, and I'm part of the community as well. And the second benediction in verse 13, may the God of hope, this is now moving up bigger, more grand than simply how we interact with one another, though I don't know what that means really. May the God of hope fill you, may you be filled with all joy and peace. I pray that for you. I pray that for you so often. May you be filled with all joy and peace in believing. That's an important word because he doesn't say may you be filled with all joy and peace in getting what you want. May you be filled with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Do you see from these benedictions how positive Paul is? Paul is willing to say things like watch out for the dogs. The mutilators of the flesh. It's, it's, it's harsh language. 
But when Paul's giving warnings that sound like, you know, the fearful thing, they're not fearful. They're saying, watch out for people who would seek to impose all kinds of rules upon you and make this about religion instead of about Jesus. So Paul's willing to get, you know, down in the dirt and do some theological wrestling. But when he gathers a community together and writes the end of a letter, he speaks so positively. And you can't do that if you're afraid. So I think the guest speakers coming in here will be great. I know many of them. Um, and I don't think, I'm, you know, I, I feel so great because I don't think any of them are driven by fear. But whether it's another speaker or whether it's another church, if you begin to hear the, the, the gospel of Christian faith turned into a message of fear, you remember that that's a demonstration of lack of faith, not presence of faith. Listen to Paul instead. And then, sorry to say, material comes after the benedictions. A couple of more things, Paul says. I know we had the closing song. You know, I know you're looking at this. We still got communion. Oh, man. Whatever, right? But Paul says, I got a couple more things to say. And he does simply two things. He reminds them of the gospel, first of all. And then he reminds them that he's a minister to the Gentiles. So what he's saying is this gospel is that biggest truth, the only truth. There's nothing that could be considered true like the gospel is true. Like our life is found in Jesus Christ. So he reminds them of the gospel as he concludes the book. And then he says by saying, I myself call myself a minister to the Gentiles. Now what Gentile means in them, so you know the distinction between Jewish and Gentile. But for our, you know, contemporary ear, Gentile to many of the people to whom Paul is writing and thinking about Gentile would mean outsider. So you can think of it that way. I consider myself a minister to the people who you thought were rejected by God. And he's compelled to proclaim the gospel beyond all barriers. There is no one for whom God has not done this. No one. What God has done for you in Jesus Christ, he has done for every person you ever see. And Paul is is this minister where there are no barriers in this proclamation of the gospel. He gets in trouble for it, though. In Acts chapter 21, if you had your Bibles, you could turn there and look at this. But um, there's an incident. So Acts gives some of the actual uh, traveling of Paul and his preaching, including preaching to Gentiles. There's an incident in Acts chapter 21, verses 26 and following, where Paul has some non-Jewish people with him, and he brings them to the temple. Now, you're not supposed to do that. Some of you who come from really traditional Plymouth Brethren circles, and I can literally say that because they're literally Plymouth Brethren circles from what I heard. I came along later. But the Plymouth Brethren used to be pretty good back in the day at saying certain people are allowed in and certain people are not. And, I mean, if you just brought your girlfriend along who might not be a believer and you think she can sit in the circle, she can't sit in the circle. Don't do that. Now, take that and magnify that by a 100 about bringing Gentiles towards or near or certainly in the temple. So Paul, the, the thought here is that he brought some Gentile men into the temple. In verse 27 of Acts chapter 21, the people saw Gentiles in the temple, They then, the religious leaders and others, they then stirred up a crowd, caused a scene, and said, look at what Paul is doing. And this is the text. Men of Israel, help! 
This is the man who has been teaching everywhere against the people and against the religious law. And this place, he's preached against this temple. And moreover, he has now even brought Greeks, that's Gentiles, he's he's even brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. That's the language of division and fear. And were you to think of bringing some people even into Sutherland Church right now, I I would take this as a judgment upon us, frankly. But if you thought, I'd really like to bring my friend so-and-so, I don't think I will because I think people won't accept them then you know who has to move on that? Not your friend. Us. Whoever that is. Shouldn't be anyone excluded. And Paul gets in trouble. But Paul in Romans says, I glory in my service to God. This gospel is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ for all, even those people who you had assumed were excluded. Paul is speaking of God's accomplishments, not his own. He knows that this gospel is for everyone, and so that's what he's going to do as he lives and works. God is working. Paul says in this text that Anne read, my ministry is therefore priestly. I bring the gospel as like a priest brings uh, mediation and intercession for the people. My my, um, ministry is powerful. But it's not powerful because I'm a great orator. It's not powerful because I'm a really friendly guy. Apparently, Paul wasn't the most friendly guy. Like, people didn't really sometimes like him that much from various things. Uh, It's not because of my oratory. It's not because of my people skills or lack thereof. It's the gospel that's working. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, even signs and wonders among us. The signs and wonders are never themselves the gospel. They are reminders that God works and reveals, and God works even wonders. Verse 19, God is at work in Jerusalem and Illyricum. In other words, God is at work before Paul gets there and after Paul gets there. Paul doesn't initiate the gospel work of God. And I don't, and you don't. And before we come here, and before there was a Sutherland, and long after there is a Sutherland, God's gospel will work. Verses 23 to 33, Paul lays out his travel plans. And it's just lovely to know, especially if you know how none of the plans came to fruition. So Paul, this one who's devoted his life to serving God, I'm going to give my life to God, I'm going to serve God, and I'm simply going to say, here's some of the things I'd like to do. You know, God, I'd really like to go to Rome and visit these people that I'm writing this letter to. That would be nice. Now, you would think, as somebody who has faced death, right, death threats, everything else, and attempts on his life from religious people and non-religious people. You would think that Paul, before God, who so faithfully proclaimed this gospel and says, you know, my big ask is that I get to go to Rome one day and see the people I'm writing this letter to. You'd think that maybe God would grant him that. It didn't work out that way. If you're working for God, you should expect smooth sailing and for all your connections to all work out. Correct? No. I mean, we don't need to bring the burgies up here and have them talk to you, but they could tell you the same thing. Paul lays out his plans, but there's a tentative nature to all of it. He requests prayer. He's uncertain. He's uncertain. He says, I'm about to undertake this endeavor, and I think I'm really doing it for God, but I need your prayers because I don't know how it's going to work out. In fact, when I get to Jerusalem, I think there's a lot of people who are going to hate me. Can you pray for me? He's not uncertain about God's goodness, but he's uncertain about day-to-day how things will work out. 
he mentions going to Jerusalem. He mentions those who would distort the gospel there and how they see him as potentially an opponent. And what happens in Jerusalem? Paul's travel plans. In Jerusalem, he is arrested and tried and imprisoned. That's not how you would write the how to speak this gospel story. However, he's also rescued, rescued from lynching, rescued from flogging, and delivered from a plot to kill him. This is for real. And this is, as we mentioned in the prayer time, the curious nature of praising God for such incidents, like God delivered me from prison. I was unjustly set in prison for proclaiming the gospel, but God delivered me. And really smart people will say, maybe it would have been better if you hadn't gone to prison in the first place. I got sick and God healed me. Maybe not getting sick would have been better. Why are you praising God? So how can we do that? And you need to be honest with your non-Christian friends about this, by the way. Don't try to cover this up. So what do we do with this? What does Paul do with it? Paul says, these are my plans. This is what I would like. But everything he writes is, but God, you are sovereign. I don't order these things. Part of trusting in God's agency is to understand this sovereignty. This is part of what it means to be Christian. Paul wanted to get to Rome, and he does actually get to Rome (laughs) three years after this letter. And you know how he gets there? Do some of you remember? He's a prisoner. He's not sitting down in anybody's house over a cup of tea. He's a prisoner having survived an absolutely devastating shipwreck. And then he's in Rome, and what would he do? What would you do? You would say, oh God, this isn't how I pictured it. And right then you're going to have a challenge. Will you trust God? And why do you think that your life would work out so much better than Paul's? And here, I can see it in your eyes. You still think that. Some of you have been relieved of that only by facing suffering. But we still tell ourselves. I still tell myself. I mean, if this is all going to work out, then I know that'll happen and that'll that'll happen and that'll happen. I have to trust. The recollection and the realization that Paul has and that he wants us to have is that the advance of the gospel in this world is true and will not be defeated. The advance of the gospel in this world is true and will not be defeated. Jesus Christ marches on in love and strength and grace. And you don't have to be afraid. And your fear is not a demonstration of your faith. It is, and you know this, dear people who I love, you know this. Your fear is a demonstration of absence of faith. If the gospel is true, then any anxiety concerning its victory is unnecessary. If the gospel is true, then any anxiety concerning its victory is unnecessary. Yet this anxiety can become a central trait of Christian communities, as if it could work out any other way. A constant questioning and worrying and complaining 
protesting and accusing, always upset about something, constantly voicing concerns, and always entering into quarrels in the church and outside of the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ, and the trouble is the word I'm about to use, you think of as uh, uh, kind of military or aggressive. It's so much bigger and better than that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the attack of the grace of God on the world of sin and death. And there's no doubt that it wins. The attack of the love of the Father and the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word of God is final. There never was, nor will there be a time when it does not shine. To those who perceive the shining of the light, Jesus Christ always proves to be the standard by which all creaturely truths are measured. It is in the end, and I know I can say it with you, and I can say this with you, it is in the end, thanks be to God, not about us. And so we can love one another, and we can live this faith in this world without fear. Faith in Jesus Christ is always more than a self-help plan. Faith in Jesus Christ is more than personal spiritual renewal. Faith in Jesus Christ is more than being good or right or holy. Faith in Jesus Christ is the acceptance that God is at work through the advance of the gospel in this world and that you and I, by this faith that we share, are in this together. So then we come to the table of communion. And we take the bread and we break it. And we say, as Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body which is given for you. Take this in remembrance of me. He's the agent of the work. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Your faith isn't in yourself or in anything human. Take this. Your sins are forgiven. Trust in me. And we call you, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, to do so in this place, even today. And some of you might think, I can't believe I would ever do something so religious. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of God for the salvation of the world. Let's pray. I'll pray for the communion and we'll hand that out. We always say that the communion in this church is for anybody who knows Jesus Christ or would like to. Your taking of the communion... Uh, is is not uh, a reminder of your standing. It's a reminder of Christ's doing, what he has done for you. But you, in receiving the communion, you declare that you know Jesus or you would, you would like to. It's a table of inclusion, not a table of exclusion. And so you're welcome to receive. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, on that night you were betrayed. You took bread and gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, you took the cup, calling it uh, the new covenant, your blood given for the salvation of the world. We do put our faith and trust in you, and we like that this, in many places, is called communion. Other names in other places, but we've heard it often by that name communion, that this is always something that we do together. And we declare here this morning that your gospel will not be defeated. And that we are, thanks to you, in this together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.